When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello and welcome to The Price of Football, the show that looks at the money behind the beautiful game with me, Kevin Day, and Liverpool University's Kieran Maguire. Kieran, how are you? We should start by congratulating Spain, who five minutes ago won the World Cup against... um, I'm not going to say plucky England, Kieran, because England played well enough, but Spain, I think, deserved winners. But the the tournament as a whole was a fantastic one, wasn't it? It, it was. Uh, I think the viewing figures will be excellent. I think that's uh, that's something going forwards for the FA in in their negotiations with um, the broadcasters. So that that's a positive. The, the quality of the, the quality of the tournament was was very good. Plenty of upsets, some pretty spectacular goals as well, and as you said. Let's be honest, I don't think there can be any England fan that can walk away from the match saying, we was robbed. Yeah. Uh, I'm going to mix my met- metaphors here, Kieran, uh, and say that I'm I'm clutching at the shortest of straws, consolation-wise, in that at least a Catholic country won it. So I think I think there's something both our families can, can hold on to, Kieran. Uh, a proper country... <laughs> I, could, I was just looking around for something that on the plus side. So, uh, but yeah, the good news for women, Kieran, as Mr Infantino said, that all it needs now is for us men to give them our permission for them to kick open the doors and we'll be fine. And if anyone's mm. doors if anyone's doors need kicking open, Kieran, it's uh, Mr Infantino somewhere in Doha for those crass comments that he made. A couple but of apparently he understands women better because he's got four daughters. I'm going, well, that does seem a rather strange thing. To say, because would his views be even more weird if he had four sons and <laughs> reached the same conclusion that uh, there, there is uh, there is still room, a lot of room, to to progress the women's game? Yeah, well, it'd, be, it'd be nice to think that those four daughters were waiting for him when he got home from the tournament. Just uh, yeah, well done, Dad, about that thing you said in the press conference. Anyway, it's questions day, Kieran. Um, so, without further ado. Let's ask our first... Oh, no, I'll have to mention it when I... Yeah, well done, Brighton, yesterday. I was. I thought I'd wait till halfway through and make some kind of sarcastic comment now, Kieran, but I'll just... I'll, I'll, I'll do it now. Well done, Brighton. All f- have, match of the day, obviously, we'll have to have a special goal of the season tournament, so all four Brighton goals can win, <laughs> ne- obviously. And well done, the fixture computer. I've said it before, I'll say it again. <laughs> Who's your next game, Kieran? West Ham at home next, uh, oh, next just, just, it's ludicrous. Do, do you they're, get they're to, the Europa Conference winners. Yeah. Do, do you get to play Man City at all this season? Are you just having a season off vis-a-vis Man City? <laughs> <laughs> Our first question, Kira, comes from Richard H. And Richard says, for its elite clubs, Adidas is offering shirts or, in inverted commas, lifestyle kits without a sponsor on the front. And I was wondering what the financial and contractual implications are. You're not the only one, Richard, I have to say. Obviously, Adidas will be looking to sell more merchandise. Have they always had the ability to do this? Or will the sponsor be compensated? Will the design or material have to change 
for it to find a loophole in the sponsor contract and therefore not actually be classed as a football kit. Or are the sponsors not that bothered because they're paying for on-spitch sponsorship? That's easy for me to say. Uh, Bravado, etc. And not little old me walking down the street with my top on. That's Richard H walking down the street with his top on, not me. (laughs) Well, I spoke to our friend, the secret kit man, and... He, he felt this was a, an absolute zinger of a question. Um, and he said that the reason why we are seeing this, and it is very much geared towards, for want of a better phrase, the big clubs and the big kit manufacturers. It's part of a general trend with regards to football shirts and terrace culture in, in the Fans like retro kits, and also there's a sub- substantial number of fans that do quite like the idea of a brand agnostic kit uh, in the sense of having no sponsor on it. Um, that's for as- both aesthetic and, and could be for personal reasons. Um, also, from the perspective of Adidas, Nike, Puma, all of the big players, they, they are trying to diversify their product range. It's, it's a bit like Apple. You, know, you can now get various flavors of iPhone. When it first came out, you had the one iPhone size, you had the one iPhone color and so on. And now you've got yeah, the, the standard, the mini, the max iPhones, you've got different colors. Um, and that helps to, to boost the appeal. Well, the kit manufacturers are, are doing the same. And it, it is very much for a, a, a small palette of clubs. Um, so, so those are the... Uh, benefits, uh, you know, it is becomes more of it's horrible word. This football shirts are becoming more of a lifestyle product as well as as terrace wear. So all of these things count towards uh, the the increase. Now, as as far as the the sponsors are concerned, and I think Richard is absolutely right. For example, I know I think uh, West Ham that they they're sponsored by Betway, um, but you can get a a West Ham kit without the sponsor's name. Uh, you can also, of course, for the children's kit, it comes automatically without a sponsor because you're not allowed to have gambling companies or, or alcohol companies' names on uh, merchandise aimed at the under-18 market. Um, it, it, if something was going to make me go towards using Betway services, it, it would be association with the football club and what I'm seeing on the pitch. If I, if I wander into Weatherspoons and see a bloke with a Stone Island jacket who's probably in... 2XL size minimum, um, you know, with Betway on the front, it's, it's not going to make me want to take up that product. So I think the sponsors, they're pretty chilled because they, they, they realise that it, it is very much the the talent and the club association which generates interest in their products as opposed to us as individuals. So I, I don't see a problem being there. Um, so overall, I think this is a direction of travel with regards to the diversification of kits with and without sponsor names. Um, ideally, we will also start to see more of that when it comes to the back of kits if you've got striped shirts, because Newcastle uh, are now playing in full stripes. And uh, for many other clubs in stripes, you've got a black or a white or a green panel or whatever it's going to be. And if you don't have the number, it does look a bit... Uh, and, you know, and let's face it, yeah, we're, we're not Trini and Susanna, neither you nor I, when it comes to fashion. But even I'm thinking, eh, it doesn't look too great, does it? So therefore, and, and I understand from a marketing point of view, therefore you're more likely to want to put a number on the back of it and the club makes more money and so on. Newcastle's marketing and design department are going to be 
going into overdrive tomorrow. Have you heard the latest price of football? Have you heard what Maguire said about our kit? Maguire says it's not fashionable enough. What, the world's sexiest accountant? That's him. Um, it would be interesting, Kieran, wouldn't it, I think, to see after Christmas whether clubs will release information about uh, whether those non-sponsored shirts are selling better than the ones with sponsors on. Yes, and, and again, when, when I contacted our uh, kit, uh, our kit secret man, he said from what he's picking up, Chelsea have done very well in terms of demand, certainly at the stadium. Uh, and that's probably around about at least 70% of their total sales are going to come from people who are visiting the stadium. If you want to buy a Chelsea shirt, you, you walk in, you get your Chelsea shirt. The fact that they've not yet signed a sponsorship deal, and I think this is a subject perhaps we will return to as a, as a separate topic uh, on Thursday, has not impacted upon the level of sales. So I, I think we'll be seeing more and more clubs consider this as an option uh, going forwards. But that will actually probably be dictated as much by the manufacturer who says, well, we can only afford two kit runs or three kit runs during the season mm-hmm. as anything else. And is that phrase brand agnostic? Is that a, a, an official one? Because it sounds a little bit like a gang of four B-side. <laughs> no, I don't know where that one uh, suddenly appeared okay. from. Uh, it, it, it's not even on my mind map, which is very <laughs> unusual, <laughs> because I've got zero imagination, as people are probably aware. So I have to write down practically everything I'm going to say. But that one suddenly sprung at me. Uh, and do we have um, do we have a secret groundsman as well? I, I love the idea of you furtively contacting a grumpy little fella <laughs> somewhere in the Premier League for updates. Um, Redmond Shannon has our next question. Name um, of the week, surely. It, it, it's a great name, isn't it? I mean, that really sounds like he should have been uh, outside the post office in Dublin in 1916, doesn't it, Redmond Shannon? <laughs> uh, <clears throat> but it's an interesting question about the last Men's World Cup. And Redmond says, is there a practical reason why last year's World Cup couldn't have been held with just four or even two stadiums in a, in a very small geographical area? I suppose time would be the the most practical consideration, Kieran, would it? That's right. And I think you've just raised the issue of the groundsman. And if there's one person that's going to have a, a major bottom lip hanging out with regards to 64 games taking place at two stadiums over 30 days, it's going to be the person in charge of the sprinklers. So I think from a pragmatic point of view, uh, the turf does need a little bit of time to, to be reconfigured from match to match. Um, it would put pressure on. If you recall, um, in the final days of the group stages of the tournaments, we were having quite a lot of matches taking place. So there would be potentially four or eight matches taking place on on a single day. And then you'd have to get prepared for the following day. It does put an awful lot of pressure on staff as well, because if you've got a match which is kicking off local time at, say, 8pm, finishing at 10, perhaps goes to penalties. You know, it could be half 10, 11 o'clock before the stadium is cleared. And then you've got another match taking place the following day. There's a lot to, to be done. Now, it can be done because if you take a look at Wembley Stadium during the summer when it's being used for, for concerts, they, they do manage that. But if there's two activities taking place during the day, again, it just makes things a little bit harder. You do have to protect the, the playing surface. We want to see high quality football. So 
I think it was a de minimis criteria that was laid down by FIFA in terms of the number of stadiums, two of which have now been uh, dismantled and are being shipped. I think one's going to Egypt and one's going to Morocco. Um, That's that's just off the top of my head, so I'm sure somebody can correct me on that, um, because they were built in a modular style. But we are, what, less than 12 months from the most recent FIFA World Cup, the Men's World Cup, and how much do we talk about Qatari football? So it was it was a spectacular, uh, it was a spectacular event, absolutely great final. Nobody's denying that, but has it put Qatari football on the map? I, I would I would argue that that has not been the case, and therefore it's been a very expensive, somewhere in the region of two hundred billion dollars. Uh, was the total cost of hosting the tournament in terms of getting the infrastructure and everything else right uh, for four weeks' worth of attention. Well, I think, to be fair, even FIFA stopped using that excuse about a year out from the World Cup, didn't they? The whole, we're going to put Qatari football on the map excuse. I, I've got a feeling, Kieran, that I saw the sprinklers supporting Gang of Four in around <laughs> 1981, I believe. Um, James Syncox has our next question. And James says, I'm a Port Vale fan. And I have a gripe with game movements from weekends to weekdays in a season. <coughs> Excuse me. As you will be aware, Port Vale are based in the town of Burslem. Mm-hmm. Uh, they are. They are the handy answer to many uh, a quiz question because Port Vale is the only team in the EFL with a, a name that doesn't actually exist. There is no place called Port Vale. It's a town which has become dependent on football matches on the weekend for its pubs to earn a good trade, especially with inflation hitting all costs. Last season, we had a few of our Saturday three o'clock games moved by Sky. And my question is, what are your thoughts on the financial cost for a League One team for lost revenue of ticket sales, match day purchases, um, brackets, Port Vale's average attendance is 7,000, against Sky's cash amount to move a game. Also, does the cost paid by Sky make it more financially beneficial to lower league teams compared to those in the Premier League? Okay. Um, I I spoke to one of our contacts in the uh, broadcast industry, and uh, in League One, the home team gets a £30,000 compensation fee from Sky for shifting the fixture. The away team gets £10,000. Um, how much difference is that going to make? If we say that the average cost of a ticket is, say, 20 quid, that's the equivalent of, what, 1,500 fans. So there, there is an offset that you have to take into consideration. But I think on a broader issue, Sky do pay a lot of money for the e- the overall EFL TV deal. Um, and it works out in League One, where uh, Port Vale are currently playing, is that, well, they were playing last season, of course, um, it works out that uh, at around about £1.5 million pounds, uh, a season. Now, that is a considerable amount of money for, for a club that's on average attendances of 7,000. If we take a look at Port Vale's accounts, and you know, that's how Sunday mornings should be taking place for any, <laughs> any well-adjusted human being. I've, I've argued for many a year, but I appear to be in a, in, a, in a gang of one. Never mind the gang of four. I'm the gang of one when it comes to going onto the company's accounts website on a Sunday morning. Um, Port Vale are losing around about a million pounds a year. So yeah, that money from Sky is pretty critical for them. Um, so looking at the overall benefits of a club playing, you've got to take a... a a 
global picture as, as far as the individual club is concerned. You've got the 1.5 million plus you've got that extra 30,000. I think in league, in the, in the championship, you get 100,000 if your match is being chosen. Uh, I know this has caused some issues with some clubs, especially Leeds United, because they've always been the biggest draw when that, when they have been in the championship. And certainly that's, that's created tensions in the past. And you can understand the frustrations of, of the Leeds United fan base on the back of that. Um, is it more financially beneficial for lower league teams compared to those of the Premier League? Well, in the Premier League, uh, and I've got a bit of a beef with the Premier League at present, because they normally, at the end of each season, they they do publish the uh, amount of money which has been distributed by clubs. And you can actually see what's regarded as the facility fee on an individual match basis. The facility fee is if you play more than 10 matches a year live for live broadcast, this is the extra money you get. Historically, it's been around about £1 million uh, per match. So you compare that to what we are seeing for a club in, in uh, League One of 30,000. There is a considerable difference. Um, and you can understand the, the logic behind having the facility fee because we know that the two Manchester clubs, Liverpool, some of the big London clubs as well, um, are going to be more popular with a broadcast audience. So therefore, they're in, they, they rightly should be uh, picking up additional money. But the, the, the differences are quite significant. That, that £10,000 compensation, Kieran, to the away team, uh, it doesn't seem a lot of money. And it, it, it seems slightly unfair that the away team gets less than the home team because surely there's more disruption for the away team and its fans in terms of changing travel arrangements at fairly short notice? Well, I think there is probably more disruption for the fans. The clubs are aware that it's sort of there's a yin and a yang to this because they will also be shown at home as well as away. As far as the home team is concerned, they have to put on those extra facilities for the cameras yeah, in terms of making sure that all of the electrical connections are set up in advance, that there's additional space created in the car park or the lorry park for the for the sky wagons, yeah, for the outside broadcast cameras. So it's it that is is proving to be. And also it is the home club who are most likely to be affected in terms of loss of attendance. And that comes from both home and away fans. You know, if I I remember Brighton played at, at Newcastle on a Thursday night last season and I was you know, umming and ahhing because, you know, as well as the the cost of attending the match in terms of travel, that's that's neutral. That that's that's not impacted because uh, you'd be going to the match anyway. But you, you can't get back from Newcastle, so therefore it's a night in a hotel, it's a meal out, you know, and, and so on. So there are additional costs for the fans, but those are those are not an issue as far as the football authorities are concerned. But you've got to also give the EFL some credit in the sense that from twenty twenty four onwards. Um, what they are going to be doing is that they will be announcing all of the fixtures chosen for television, chosen for broadcast in August. Whereas we, as fans of Premier League clubs, we have to wait. And, and sometimes it can be as little as six weeks notice. Anybody who travels to matches by train uh, will confer that, be able to confirm this. The advance tickets, which uh, are substantially uh, discounted, uh, they tend to have gone. And it makes uh, it makes being an away fan an increasingly expensive experience. You know, again, the one merit I would give to the Premier League is that they they have stuck with the thirty pound away tickets charge. But uh, I think they they are oblivious of the 
complexities of away travel for fans and the additional costs that by having the current system has on them. And and if the Premier League TV deal does result uh, from 2024-25, that's when the next deal is is due to be confirmed, um, if if there's going to be more matches which are going to be chosen for domestic broadcast, and there's there's a significant hint of that, it's going up from the current 200 to perhaps 240-260, that's more away fans being impacted. And I would hope that the Premier League does listen to the interests of fans. I'm Steve Lamack and every week I'm joined by Music Allies Head of Insights Stuart Dredge on The Price of Music, the weekly podcast all about the money behind the music industry. In each episode we discuss the very latest goings on in the music business and dig into the finances behind the big stories. So whether you're a music lover who just wants to know more about what really goes on in the industry or you're an aspiring musician, manager or label owner who wants some inside knowledge on how Spotify's financial model really works or what the future holds for independent live music venues, this is a show for you. Subscribe to The Price of Music in your podcast app now. See you soon. Our next question, Kieran, comes from Tanya Goal. Um, I'm going to stick with that pronunciation, Kieran, given the the fact we're talking about football. Tanya, if it's wrong, I apologise. It's G-O-E-L. So it's one of those short surnames that's got a multitude of possibilities in there. So, uh, Tanya, please let me know if I got that wrong or right. But Tanya's question is also uh, harking back to last year's Men's World Cup, um, which, again, I'm afraid is an indication of how long our waiting list of questions is. So I do apologise for that. But Tanya says, and it's an interesting one, why didn't the big clubs allow their women's team to play at their main stadiums during last year's Men's World Cup? Uh, So men's football obviously wasn't going on for that four-week period. Tanya says, I support Liverpool, and our women's team only played one match at Anfield against Everton during that time, and the rest of the matches were played at Prenton Park, as usual. Wouldn't it have been better to allow the women's team to play in the club's main stadium and keep all the gate receipts rather than make them play in another club's stadium over those four weeks and share the gate receipts? Yeah, I'm sure that this is a... It is ultimately a financial decision. And my understanding of Fenway Sports Group, who own Liverpool, is that they have a forensic addressing of all things to do with both revenue and costs. I mean, Tanya makes reference to the match taking place against Everton. Crowd of 27,000 turned up at Anfield. Yeah, that's that's indicative. If we take a look at Arsenal, Arsenal heard three or four crowds in excess of 40,000 last season. So... It does show that when the the women's team, when the the senior stadium, for want of a better phrase, and I'm not trying to be denigrating where they do play on a more regular basis, but in the uh, in the bigger stadium, when it is offered, it can be very successful. But I think from the club's point of view, there's also the additional cost. There's also uh, complexities in terms of the fixture list because Sky do take precedence with regards to when matches take place. So if Sky want to have a match taking place on a Sunday afternoon when the WSL match would normally take place, then Sky can say, well, we want that match between Arsenal and such and such. So that there are a number of moving pieces with regards to this. Our friends, the groundsmen, they would come back into consideration as well. Um, and I think you you have to get it right because 
Spurs played at at White Hart Lane because that's that's the name of the stadium. In case Spurs <laughs> Spurs owners are trying desperately to to convince us it's called the Tottenham Hotspur, no, it's White Hart Lane. Um, they they played a match. I think the attendance was around about three thousand. Now, now it's a magnificent stadium, but and if, and as a player, I'd I'd love to play there, um, but. 3,000, you are rattling around in, in terms of generating atmosphere. You've still got the costs of running, the full costs of running the stadium. I know Brighton played a, a home game last season in the WSL. Again, the crowd was, was 5,000. Great by the standards of the club, because they're normally playing at Crawley with, with sort of, you know, probably 1,500 to 2,000. So you, you do get bigger crowds, but against that, you have to offset the, the higher costs. And they they do do their sums quite carefully. The direction of travel, however, is uh, forwards. I absolutely take on Tanya's comment that it could perhaps have been a lost opportunity during the World Cup when there was the opportunity to show more matches from the WSL because as much as I love the World Cup, I was still getting itchy feet. You know, I ended up going to some non-league games and I did see some WSL games as well. But I'd rather see it in a stadium with, with which you've got a, a greater affinity. Mm. Uh, our next question, Kieran, comes from uh, Peter Lord, uh, a name which my Catholic aunties would wholeheartedly approve of. Uh, so he's got the name of Peter and the Lord in there. That's a that's a good Catholic name, isn't it? But Peter Lord's question starts off really well, Kieran, and then he gets a bit carried away, imagination-wise. But the, <laughs> uh, it, it's <laughs> I, I like the, the the cut of Peter Lord's jib. But Peter Lord says, "How would the FFP police?" derive a fair value appraisal on a unique event. So far, so good. For example, if Elon Musk bought a club and put the team shirt with sponsors on Mars, could they claim billions of dollars in terms of sponsorship? Given there probably isn't a fair value precedent, is this something a club could look to exploit? Maybe with a less extreme example. I'm I'm willing to change. There probably isn't a a precedent on this one too. There definitely... (laughs) There definitely isn't a precedent on, it, on putting a team shirt on Mars, Kieran, is it? But it's a, it's a, it's a good question. When it, I, I, it's never actually occurred to me how FFP would put a fair value on a, a one-off event. Yes, and that's why we are seeing some new relationships taking place. So Chelsea are supposedly in conversation with an organisation for a £40 million a year front of shirt deal um, for an organisation which didn't exist until very, very recently and has annual revenues of around about £12 million a year. So, so that, that has caused eyebrows to be raised. Um, I'd also just like to say that as an ex-altar boy, I have nothing to do with the Catholic Church anymore. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I am a card-carrying atheist. Um, and that's nothing to do. Uh, Doing, yeah, having 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 to cycle to church at seven thirty in the morning on a on a Tuesday or Wednesday for a service, uh, which will be attended by normally two sleeping nuns um, and somebody looking very very guilty, um, and, and that wasn't necessarily the priest. Um, Hang on, Kim, but- can, you, can you just say the word the two sleeping nuns in the voice of John Peel? Because if there wasn't a band called Two Sleeping Nuns <laughs> and they weren't on John Peel's Christmas hit list, I want to know the reason why. Two Sleeping Nuns there. <laughs> yes. Um, so I think Peter does raise a valid issue in 
determining the price for any unique asset is very difficult. And this has been something which has been raised in court in Italy when Juventus were accused of selling and buying players at non-market rates. And the conclusion made by the judge was, well, there is only one, you know, Bellatoni. There is only one player um, because we are all unique as far as, as far as, as talent is concerned. But what would happen as far as the FF police were concerned, they would go to a, a brand value organization. They'd go to a marketing consultant and they would look at a number of metrics which would contribute towards what they would consider to be fair value. Uh, things such as the number of followers on social media, the history of the club as far as significant tournaments, you know, Euro European tournaments are concerned, the history of the club's previous deals. And I know that this has been a an issue with regards to Newcastle United because they're moving from a £7 million a year deal to a £25 million a year deal. And they are saying, well, hold on, we're playing in the Champions League this year. Um, we were held back by Mike Ashley because he was a toxic brand. Uh, when he was in charge, and so on. And you end up with discussions between different sets of marketing people, accountants, and lawyers on both the sides of the Premier League and that of the club in question. So it is a challenging uh, issue in terms of... Yeah, how much is the Mona Lisa worth? How much is a Banksy worth? And, and if you remember uh, Harry Hodge, when he, he had Diego Maradona's shirt from the Hand of God match which went up for auction, and it went for three or four times the amount that was anticipated. So it's, so these contracts are very difficult to determine uh, with regards to fair value, and we have seen the authorities get their fingers burnt historically when they've tried to force things through, especially with regards to stadium values when uh, it was uh, the in thing in EFL clubs to sell the stadium to a company owned by the club owner. It would have been quite nice if uh, that Maradona shirt auction, if, if both Peter Reid and Terry Fenwick wanted it, but couldn't get anywhere near it. Just couldn't get anywhere near the price, <laughs> just for old time's sake. Michael Alexander has, uh, I think, a very interesting question, Kieran, in light of a discussion we had recently with one of our guests. Michael says, I have a question about international tournaments and team hotels. How do international teams choose a hotel? Who picks up the bill, the FA or FIFA? And how long would the hotel be booked for? For example, if England booked all the way to the final and got eliminated in the first round, would they have to pay for empty rooms? Conversely, if a smaller nation booked only for the first round and made it to the round of 16, would they have to find a tonne of Airbnbs? The reason I thought about this interview, Kieran, that we had with Chloe, um, the lovely woman who organises all Manchester United's travel to away games is that we've got European tournament, Champions League, Europa League starting, I think the group's matches start in three weeks, the draw hasn't been made yet, so mm. that strikes me in terms of hotels, but it's going to be an enormous kickball at scramble for all the clubs involved to get those um, uh, arrangements made in time, isn't it? Yes, if you talk to people from clubs, I think there is a degree of frustration with regards to the draw for the UEFA tournaments. At the same time, we are currently working our way through the preliminary rounds of those tournaments. And, and I know on, on my WhatsApp groups with fellow Brighton fans, 
you know, our, our opportunity to go to Kurdistan has just been snaffled. You know, it's just gone. <laughs> and we're gutted because we, we, we want the obscure ones. You know, the, the, the nightmare draw would be you know, TNS, Aberdeen and Coleraine. No disrespect to any of those clubs, but I, I, the idea of going somewhere far flung is, uh, is romantic until you get stuck in an airport for four hours waiting for your visa to be approved. And so Kieran, on. Kieran I, I have to say, uh, obviously I have to say this, that yeah, those Kurdistan fans, teams, they will be just as disappointed that they're out, Kieran, because they would have wanted you as well. They'd be going somewhere in Kurdistan. We wanted the obscure one. We wanted Brighton yes. away. That's what we wanted. We didn't want one in the next country. Yes, yeah, so yeah, I thought you might mention the fact that you're in Europe, Kieran. Good luck. I can't wait for the draw. <laughs> but with with regards to the hotels, um, as far as Michael's question is concerned, it is normally the responsibility of the individual football association, and they will have been planning this for months in advance. As soon as the draw is made, they will send scouts over. They will look at uh, the security issues because they will want to book a whole hotel. They they want to make sure that that they can't be uh, disturbed. There are many stories that we are familiar with, especially in recent times of a football club booking into a hotel, uh, especially for Champions League matches. And then the night before the match, some of the local urchins thinking it's a splendid idea to have a uh, a major firework display at three o'clock in the morning or to sneak somebody in dressed in a waiter's outfit and press the fire alarm uh, and so on. And I'm, I'm very it's, it's familiar. Fun. It's, 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 it's never going to happen to Palace Kieran. I, I can confidently predict it. It's funny. It's, 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 <laughs> I like the fact that you use the word urchins as well. Like little, like there's something out of an Oliver Twist, the, the artful dodger. <laughs> But it's uh, yeah. You talk. You talk. Chloe's job is 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 a bit of a nightmare because you've got to arrange for those three matches. Um, she is very experienced, so she knows the best hotels in in the countries, which are most likely uh, to be arising. And certainly, as far as the you know, Manchester United will be a first seed, she'll have worked out who the where the second seeds and third seeds can be. And it is now quite a restricted palette because. You cannot have two clubs from the same country taking place in the group games. So it it is being reduced in terms of the number of sizes. When we move to the Swiss-style draw next year, um, I think things will start to get more complicated again because all of a sudden you've got four home fixtures could be extended to even more of those within a few years. Mm. So what would happen to answer the second part of Michael's question? If England have booked a hotel, which I presume they would do for the the entire tournament, and then they don't qualify out of the group, do, do they pay for it? Is the hotel then empty for two weeks? Do they get? Will they will they have done that? Will they have done a deal based on that possibility? Well, if it's a big country, um, and now I've got a song going through my head from the mid nineteen eighties, then. Of course, where you play your group games could be geographically significantly different from when you're going to play your knockout games. So the the FA will have tentatively booked a hotel in one of the two uh, venues where the round of 16, the quarterfinal, the semifinal. So they will have done their homework and they will have come to some form of agreement. And sometimes there can be a sort of a gentleman's agreement. So let's say that the the English FA and the, and the German FA say, "Well, yeah, 
we're likely to play each other in the quarterfinal. One of us is going to win. Let's both agree that we will book such and such a hotel for the semi-final, and whichever team wins, they go there, and that way you reduce the the, the negative costs from the uh, from the club that loses, or sorry, the country that loses. And it's all very well, Kieran, having multi-country World Cup finals. But for example, if you're our friends in Latvia and you qualify for the World Cup, you you're now a country on a fairly small budget that's got to book, I presume, hotels in all three of those countries because the the chances are you, you don't know where the draw is going to put you, or the chances are you might be playing in two of three of those countries. That that seems to me a ruinous cost for a small country qualifying for a World Cup. It is. I mean, to be fair to FIFA, and, and I don't say that very often, um, the level of distribution of funds to the participating nations is quite generous. There was, I think it was $440 million was distributed to the 32 participants of the FIFA 22 World Cup. Um, and that was in a relatively small country. I think they're expecting that to go up as far as the the tournament which is taking place. Um, and it is going to be a, uh, a a big travelling... You know, first of all, you've got the USA. Not It's not small potatoes, is it, as a country in its own right? Then you've got Canada in it as well, and Mexico as the three host countries uh, geographically. It's not only costly for the football associations, but what if you are one of the fans? Yes, especially if you have to go from coast to coast. Yeah, it, it could be pretty ruinous. Uh, but what FIFA have found out is that tickets sell regardless. Yeah, of course they do. It's a World Cup. Ethan Kirkpatrick has a question, which is um, it's a similar subject we have discussed before, but this is a new angle on it. So I'm happy to ask it. Ethan says, if a player picks up an injury at an international tournament, then picks up the same injury for his or her club a few weeks later, would the club still get compensation from FIFA? I know it's a bit tenuous, but it seemed like a possibility. It It is, Kieran. I mean, if, if a player was to be injured in the World Cup and then that injury uh, was exacerbated two games into the domestic season, that's a, a fairly likely scenario, isn't it? It, it is, and... What would happen here is that should the player be injured during the course of the World Cup, we then have the FIFA Club Protection Programme kick in, and that paid out $22 million, uh, for the 2022 World Cup. There would be effectively independent doctors, I suspect, would be appointed should, should the player um, have a, a recurrence of the injury, and it could be said that you know there was a legacy effect of the injury of the injury which took place in the World Cup, and then there would be arguments taking place. Um, you know, we are aware that that FIFA has not been particularly good, however, at physically paying the money which is owed to clubs, because we, we were contacted recently by the chief executive of a club in one of the lower leagues who was entitled to a compensation for losing one of their players to the World Cup in Qatar. Um, and they've not been able to spend any money on players over the course of the summer because they thought, oh, we were anticipating this coming in. It was a decent fee by, by League Two standards. Um, and we've not physically received the cash uh, because uh, Gianni Infantino is is probably counting the number of daughters that he has, or something like that, uh, and can't get around to writing the checks. Is that is that FIFA policy, Kieran, or is it just bad admin? Do you think? I think it is bad admin. Uh, I think it, it's unprofessional in the extreme because the the clubs lost the players in November twenty two, and to have not played that money by June or July in in twenty twenty three, there is there is no excuse. 
we had a discussion several weeks, Kieran, ago about um, dodgy sponsorship deals in football. And Conor McGuigan, um, either by coincidence, asked this question about a year ago, or he's one of the few that's been allowed in by producer guy that were asked within the last couple of weeks. But is it, he says, he asked us basically to put some flesh on the bones. He says, could you shed some light on some of the best examples of dodgy sponsorships in football? Um, yes, I guess I could. Um, we'll, we'll start off with Sheffield Wednesday, which is owned by Delphon Chancery. Now, Sheffield Wednesday had a an official taxi sponsor called D-Taxis. Um, and if, if I was... If I was phoning for a taxi, Kevin, there, there would be two main issues. There'd be two main sets of two, two main elements of focus upon my uh, success. One, I would assume that the taxi company has a telephone number, <laughs> and secondly, the taxi company would have taxis. In the case of D taxis, neither of these elements appeared to be in motion. Um, so, so there was that. In, in addition to that, they were being sponsored by an energy drink company, which at the time, I think it now does have a product range, uh, didn't seem to have any energy drinks. And, and energy drinks appears to be a bit of a common theme with regards to issues with football club. I believe Huddersfield, they themselves were being sponsored by an energy drinks company, which didn't pay. So they lost money. Um we also had uh, Digital Bits support, uh, which was one of these crypto companies, which is by no way you know, a, a Ponzi scheme for uh, <laughs> uh, people who think they're going to make money from it. Uh, they didn't pay. I think it was Internazionale. Uh, we had Barnsley being sponsored by Hex.com. And according to the latest reports, not only is the person in charge of Hex.com, the uh, somewhat romantically named Richard Hart. Not only is he, has he been charged by the uh, the USA authorities, by the FBI, for various financial-related misfeasance, he is now on the run. And it's always a phrase that I like to use. So he's, he's officially, he's, he's a wanted man. There, there are posters of him going up here and indeed there. Um, Everton, in terms of dodgy sponsorship, well, we come to uh, their uh, Russian friend, who the former uh, business partner of uh, the club owner, uh, Mr. Mashiri, and uh, Mr. Usmanov, uh, he he generously decided to sponsor uh, Fitch Farm uh, with a a substantial, yeah, we're talking millions of pounds of sponsorship went in there. And you might say to yourself offhand, why would a an Eastern European metal exchange sponsor the training facilities of a football club in Merseyside? Yeah, I'm, I'm not seeing the commercial benefits. And on top of that, he, he then, of course, uh, spent around about 30 to 35 million pounds in relation to an option to have naming rights for a football stadium that didn't have planning permission. Now, that, that is, again, I'm not saying it's dodgy because we're not cynics. A, a, a cynic would say that's dodgy. Um, and that was done purely to uh, bring Everton within the, the realm of compliance with financial fair play to allow them to sack a manager and replace him with somebody else. But yeah, we're not cynics on this show. It is a great expression there on the run. I'd love to be phoning my mate Chris, for example, and his missus answers again. Is Chris here? No, he's on the run. 
Talking of minicab companies, and I'm particularly looking at you, minicab companies in in Devon here. Uh, in in the unlikely event that there are many minicab controllers listening to this, if if I phone up your number for a cab, and I get a message saying, "Please download the app," I'm phoning somebody else. All right? That's <laughs> uh, all I'm saying. Is you're not you're not losing. The downside of that is it took me nearly an hour to get a cab from the hotel in Plymouth recently to the station because obviously. Me not being used to travel lodges, which is where producer guy put us. I, I bowled downstairs, fully expecting there to be some kind of concierge in the travel lodge, and I was disappointed, Kieran. It wasn't even an automated concierge machine, so I had to organise my own cab. So producer guy's ears were burning that morning, I can tell you. But yeah, the first two companies I've heard, please download the app. Nope, I would rather walk and miss the train than do that. Um, which is a poor reflection on me rather than the minicab companies, I presume, Kieran, who are just trying to bring themselves kicking and screaming into the modern age. Uh, when I saw this next question, Kieran, and the, the, the technical detail involved in the asking of it, I, I must have a little tear came to my eyes. I thought, oh, Uncle Kieran's going to be so pleased with, <laughs> with, with some of the words in here. It comes from David Watson, and David Watson says, when Rangers were liquidated, their unsecured creditors ended up getting 14.3 pence in the pound, which seemed to me an extraordinary result. Can you tell me what has been achieved from other football insolvency scenarios, in particular, say, Dundee or Hearts, who managed to come out of admin thereby receiving way less significant punishment than was imposed on Rangers? Before you answer that question, Kieran, when David says 14.3 pence in the pound seems to be an extraordinary result, which which way is that? Extraordinarily good or extraordinarily bad? Good. The, the vast majority of liquidations of companies result in a zero payment oh, okay. to unsecured creditors. Right. So this would be one of the more positive ones. So unsecured creditors are people like St John's Ambulance, people who print the programmes, that sort of people? That's right. There is a, there's a hierarchy of entitlement when it comes to uh, a business going into uh, an insolvency event. So the first people that get paid are the administrators, stroke liquidators. And having worked in that industry... I can understand why people get upset because the fees are high. At the same time, who's going to do the work unless they're going to be first, get first dips of the money? And quite often, if, if it's not a successful process, uh, the, the insolvency company themselves can end up losing money uh, in respect of the event. So first of all, it is the, uh, the, the professional insolvency body. Then it will be what we refer to as the, the secured creditors, the people who have a mortgage so that's why we see many of the banks and other financial institutions who are lending money to the football clubs. They will have what we refer to as a debenture. Debenture is another word for mortgage. And that will, that will effectively crystallise when that club goes into administration. They tend to get their money back from the proceeds of the sale of, of the property assets and, and other assets which are under the charge. Then we would drop down um, to any other uh, preferential creditors, if, if there are any, and then the last people to be paid are the um, are the unsecured creditors. The, these are the people that provide the organisation with goods and services in good faith on credit, on the assumption that the club is going to pay them. Mm, okay. Um, so, what about these other scenarios that David talked about then? Well, as far as um, 
administration is concerned, certainly with regards to what happens in England, if you fail to pay people at least 25 pence in the pound exiting administration, then you are subject to a further points penalty. But that still would be substantially less than, than what we saw in relation to Rangers, who, who were effectively demoted three divisions. So uh, the, the Rangers case, we could do a we could do a 12 hour show on the Rangers case and still be scratching the surface. Um, so with regards to other clubs, it, it does depend on, on individual circumstances. The reason why the football authorities have now brought in this rule is there were clubs who were very much gaming the system. Now, And I talk about football clubs. I shouldn't. Football club owners. And, and therefore, what they would do, um, and I'm not looking at any particular owner with a beard here, um, but they... They would see, well, if the club's about to be relegated, they would time the uh, administration in such a way that all of the points deductions would go through the relegation season and therefore they wouldn't impact upon the following season. Um, and it was quite a, a cynical uh, set of circumstances that we were seeing take place. And therefore, the football authorities have have responded because they do acknowledge that Creditors tend to be pretty generous towards football clubs, either A, because the owner of the business is a supporter of the football club themselves and therefore tends to be a little bit more relaxed with regarding to giving extended credit, or B, the football club is of such high standing within that town or city, you don't want to be seen to be the person that's petitioning a court for a winding up order, which is the only thing you can effectively do. You can go through a small claims court, but if it's, if it's more than what, 250, 750, whatever it is, you've got to go through a, a proper court procedure. You don't particularly want to be the scene as the person who is trying to wind up the club in order to get your money back because some of your customers will be fans of the club and they might say, what are you doing? You know, this is this club's in crisis. You're not, you should be doing your bit to help. So from a reputational point of view, it, it does cause... Further complications. So again, the creditors tend to give the football club a bit more slack. Our final question, Kieran, is a pertinent and topical one, if that's not a tautology. It comes from Robert Little. Robert says, when a club fails to pay players wages, either all or a percentage without prior wage deferral agreement, which was unique during COVID, is that considered a breach of contract? And if so, would a player be free to leave? Right. Again, I'm uh, grateful to one of our friends in the legal profession um, for uh, a bit more accurate advice than than we pub lawyers can, <laughs> can provide. Um, so I, I, the person who knows this, I've been in contact with him this morning and, and he knows who he is and much thanks. Uh, there's, there's a signed copy of Unfit and Improper Persons Coming Your Way, by the way, for, for your help here. Um, his reply was, I don't think that there is a football-specific rule on this, and the employment law position is that there's no strict statutory right to walk away if unpaid after 14 days. If you were unpaid, you could assert a repudiatory breach of contract and then leave, as non-payment is a fundamental breach of contract. However, 
you'd want to have made a demand for the monies, and my employment partner says he would not advise somebody to just leave after 14 days without asking for money, making demand, and only then asserting a breach, and that contract is ended. Now, we have seen some players walk away. I think I think somebody at Wigan has done it, and certainly somebody at Southend has done it as well. Uh, and you can understand it from the point of view of the player. I know some fans are saying, well, you should be supporting the club. But as far as a football player is concerned, they are a professional athlete. Their folk, their their priority is to their families. And yeah, if if, I, if that had happened to me under those circumstances, I'd explore all options. I'd probably be taking legal advice. And that's what some of these players have decided to do. Thank you to everyone who's donated to the pod via our Patreon page. If you'd like to make a small monthly contribution to the pod as well, that would be very kind. And you can do so by going to patreon.com slash priceoffootball. We've now added a new benefit for our £5 a month subscribers, otherwise known as the Ultras. And if there's a less scary looking bunch of Ultras anywhere in world football, Kieran, (laughs) than the Price of Football Ultras, I'd love to meet them. But anyway, if you are one of our Ultras... um, We've set up a Discord channel and we'll be doing live half-hour chats on there once a month. Uh, but you, legally, you have to have a scarf across most of your face and a black hoodie if you want to be a proper ultra. So yes, we'll be doing a live half-hour chat on our uh, Discord channel. We've just confirmed that our first one will happen at 7 o'clock on Thursday, August the 31st. That's 7 o'clock on Thursday, August the 31st. So if you'd like to chat with the two of us or producer guy, sign up for our £5 a month option. And we'll see you there. Also, we are recording on a new platform, which generates a transcript of the pod, um, which rather amusingly, it turns out that I go ha ha ha, and Kieran goes he he he. Um, Otherwise, it's surprisingly accurate, apart from one or two names at the end. But we're investigating ways of getting that transcript um, to you so you can see them. So if you know anybody who has hearing issues or is unable to listen to the pod, uh, but might like to to read a transcript. We will try and find out as soon as possible how we can do that for you. In the meantime, if you have a question you'd like answered on the show, email us at questions at priceoffootball.com. We'll be back on, thir- on Thursday, of course, with our news pod. And if you'd like to pre-order our new book, Unfit and Improper Persons, which is out on October the 12th, or one of our other books, get yourself a Price of Football t-shirt as well, then you can go to our new look website at priceoffootball.com. In the meantime, I shall hand you over to Mr. Kieran Maguire for his customary farewell. Yes, and we can confirm that we will be at a literary festival oh, yes, as part of the book launch. Yes. Um, and I, I guess I can say, that I think we are we are 99% confirmed in terms of uh, all, all of that event. And that's taking place at uh, Blackpool Winter Gardens. Yes. So I'm, I'm very much excited about that. I've seen New Order and Placebo play at the Winter Gardens. So, never mind, Kieran, uh, never, be... never mind that. How far away is it from French's? Because obviously <laughs> we will be getting ourselves a, a moody... Joy Division type black and white photograph in our trench coats outside the French's or wherever it was. Never mind. That's the only reason I agreed to do the gig because I, yes. I love Blackpool as a town, but it's, uh, it's it's in the same town as French's, the nightclub you used to run. Yes, yeah, and and we're doing a, a live show as well. We are indeed uh, as as part of the the overall launch event, uh, as as well as we will be announcing some dates for other shows as well to uh, uh, get a chance to, to meet some people, uh, to, uh, to sign books and uh, generally to, to, to be able to do all the stories that we can't put out on the podcast. Although I think 
you have advised me that that's not legal either. <laughs> Correct. Some of some of them, yes. It's not me, Kieran. It's a legal friend of mine who said just just actually sharing some of these stories with people because it's not just one person you tell, Kieran. You've you've always you're like the Pied Piper of accountancy. You always attract a little group of fanboys around you. And you tell everybody these things that no, legally you shouldn't be telling them. We we will have uh, we have confirmed another date for a live gig in the northwest, and we will share that with you on Thursday as well. So. Uh, in the meantime, let's go back to Kieran doing In the Meantime. <laughs> yes. um, well, you, thanks for everybody at Patreon. And uh, we, we are looking forward to having our uh, our sort of live chat with you. Uh, whether we'll put that out as a show, uh, as a podcast uh, as well, we, we don't know. We don't We don't quite understand the technology. So forgive it. That's putting it mildly. It took an hour to explain what Discord was to me. Why is it? And why it's called Discord. Why do I want to go and have an argument with somebody on Discord? Oh, no, it's really peaceful. Why are they calling it Discord? I don't want an app. I want a cab. Just send me a cab. I don't want to download an app. The other way of supporting <laughs> the show is, is to give us a review. It helps us in the charts. It uh, it helps us when we're trying to book guests, and we've got some some interesting guests lined up mm. for you in the, in the next month or two, as well as courses at regular twice a week shows. Um, it doesn't matter what you say as far as the review is concerned. So you could even say you would rather have it presented by Gianni Infantino and his four daughters, and I think that'll be wonderful. Well, uh, again, if there isn't, uh, if only John Peel was here now to say it in that. Say Gianni Infantino and his four daughters and his accent. I would, um, I'll tell you what, I would love to do that. We'll, we'll put that to Gianni, but only when he's paid you the money he owes you, Kieran. <laughs> bye, everybody. Well, oh, God. Yeah, bye. On. No, no, tell us. What, what, what are you going to say? Well, he doesn't actually owe me any money because when I did work for FIFA a few months ago, they said, fantastic. And it was all about, it was all about amortization as well, all about how to, which of course is a very sexy subject. And FIFA came up to me and said, that was, that was, thanks very much. I really appreciate that. We, all, all the audience were, uh, you know, that they, they were quite zinged by those, some of those numbers. Um, but just remember, we're a charity, so we expect you to do it for nothing. Yeah, I think you should channel your Uncle Terry there because I don't think Uncle Terry, charity or not, you did an hour's graft. You want your money. Bye, everyone. Bye. I'm for the